<laughs> You're using your mom's computer? Say hi, Ma. Hello, how are ya? Hello, Pat. Pleased to meet you. <laughs> You are listening to the official podcast of the Horrible Imaginings Film Festival, where we brought an analysis of stigmatized creative expression in film, art, and literature to understand the misunderstood. Your host is Miguel Rodriguez. In case you didn't know, Wing Wing is Agent Double O. Where's Baldo? Talk! You dirty rat! Talk! What you've just heard were a couple of clips from Wang Wang films, specifically from a new documentary about the enigmatic Filipino action star called The Search for Wang Wang. For those of you who have never heard of Wang Wang, he was a diminutive two foot nine inch Filipino martial artist who was discovered by producers and experienced a very brief period of international stardom as a highly unlikely action star. He started out in bit parts as kind of bizarre background character in films like Sila Sabawat Banqueta and Chop Suey Meets Big Time Papa before unbelievably landing the starring role as a tiny spy in a James Bond spoof called For Your Height Only. Members of the very large Filipino film community were shocked and horrified when For Your Height Only turned out to be the one and only internationally selling film at the 1982 Manila Film Festival, turning Wang Wang almost overnight into the most well-known Filipino film export in cinema history, even outgrossing Raiders of the Lost Ark in some countries. This surprise fame lasted for a few more films before poor Wang Wang seemed to disappear into thin air. The B-grade nature of these films, coupled with the discomfort and embarrassment people felt at their exploitation and potential offensiveness, kind of combined to relegate Wang Wang and his legacy to almost a complete obscurity, even to people who actively seek out obscure cinema. The answers to questions about who he was, where he came from, and whatever happened to him have remained elusive, and his story has even developed an entire mythology of rumors ranging in levels of the bizarre. Fast forward to around 2006, when an Australian cinephile and former video store owner named Andrew Leavold began a seven-year journey in the Philippines attempting to answer these very questions. Leavold's quest has been exhaustive and thorough. The nature of his quixotic efforts can be symbolized in a large, almost religious tattoo he has on his shoulder, featuring the face of Wang Wang surrounded by a halo and flowers. And the culmination of those efforts can be viewed in the form of a brand new documentary. Again, that documentary is called The Search for Wang Wang, and it will embark on a cinema tour of the United States and Canada starting this Saturday, December 6th, at the Ken Cinema here in San Diego, California. I'm proud to say that Horrible Imaginings is sponsoring this tour and helping to bring the word of Wang Wang to the people. I know that sounds ridiculous, and perhaps you're thinking we're even pandering to the type of cheap crap that makes mockery of people who are different or exploits them before spitting them out to die in poverty. Leavold's purpose in his documentary, however, is to find the humanity in an actor who was used and forgotten. And it is this worthy purpose that we are trying to support. 
Andrew Leivold will be joining us in San Diego this Saturday at the Ken Cinema for our midnight screening of the documentary. But I decided to talk to him on this podcast as well to kind of dig deeper into what his experiences were with making this documentary, The Search for Wang Wang, as well as some of the, really, the kind of almost deep revelations that he received when trying to unfold the mysteries surrounding this little actor. And really, this kind of goes right to the heart of what I always am trying to do with the podcast and with the film festival, and that is to show and illustrate how we can achieve enlightenment from the most unexpected of places. This is definitely something I'm passionate about and something we talk about over the course of our conversation. But anyway, let's go ahead and turn over to my conversation with Andrew Leivold, where I start by picking a quote from his documentary that's about him to kind of get us talking about his own obsessions with film and why he decided to start this insane journey on the search for Weng Weng. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Miguel. It's an absolute pleasure. I think we'll just start off at the beginning. One of my favorite comments is about you. I forget who it is who who does this quote. This gentleman comes out with this. He lives and breathes these kind of B-movies. And then the more important words, he believes in them. This is what initiates your search. And this is what initiates something as mad as what you did, or just searching for a bootleg VHS of For Your Height Only in, you know, in old bins, covering your fingers with dust, looking for this film. Although now, of course, you could just pop it on YouTube, probably. But back when I first saw these films, it was a mad search for them. You heard about it, and, and you couldn't even believe they existed, right? Yeah. I want you to talk about your living and breathing of these kinds of films and more importantly, where the words he believes in them comes from. Yeah, good point. Well, I'll take you right the way back. 1975, I was five years old, living in Oman at the time. So in mm. uh, as an expat kid in the Middle East. And uh, they used to screen movies on the side of a social club across the other side of a, a, va- a valley between the two flat mountains where we lived in Oman. And uh, I would go there as much as I could to watch all the family-friendly films, you know, Herbie Goes Bananas and <laughs> Where Eagles Dare and all that, all that good shit from the uh, late 60s, early 70s. But then Jaws played one night, and uh, I remember being absolutely obsessed with the idea of, of watching a shark eat a human. <laughs> so, but my parents wouldn't let me go and see it. <laughs> so I snuck onto the balcony with a pair of binoculars, and I watched the first 15 minutes through binoculars with the sound coming across the valley, I think about one or two seconds later. And that was my first experience at watching a genre film, I guess. Mm -hmm. It was very much the idea of watching something that was forbidden or that was almost impossible to watch under ordinary circumstances that got me absolutely fired up. And I guess that was the start of this idea of trying to hunt for for the hidden, for the obscure and the forgotten, and digging it up, dusting it off, and presenting it to other people and saying, look what I found, isn't this awesome? Mm -hmm. That uh, idea went all the way through uh, my childhood into the Betamax years when Betamax first came out in 79. I was the kid on the block copying movies from everyone, for everyone between two Betamax machines and renting them out. (laughs) 
as soon as I got out of college, I started up a, a cult video store called Trash Video that specialized in arcane, obscure, weird, psychotronic. And, and of course, in the search for films to fill the shop, there was always a, a kind of holy grail which was this midget James Bond film from the Philippines for your height only. It was always talked about in hushed tones yeah. between tape collectors. Have you seen the midget James Bond film? Have you heard about Wang Wang? Of course, you know, that fired me up. I thought, right, I've got to see this. One of my favorite things in the world was badly dubbed kung fu films. You know, the worse the dubbing, you know, the the more like catnip it was for this film obsessive. I, I finally found it. It was probably on, on an eighth generation bootleg tape from a, a tape trading friend of mine. Of course. I watched it and, and it blew my mind. I mean, I could not believe what I was watching. It seemed to me like it was the greatest film of all time <laughs> starring this enigmatic little gnome called Wang Wang who seemed to be doing his own stunts, mm. dubbed in a voice that sounded like Donald Duck trying to do a vaudeville. And I, just remember everything changing at that point you know all of a sudden i had a high water mark by which all future weird psychotronic films would be judged and of course the the, the mystery behind wang wang was so intense since there was so zero information about him that as a an a obscure film detective started me off on as you described a, a seemingly quixotic quest to try and uh, solve the biggest mystery in B films, as far as I could tell. So the obsession grew and grew, and I started having dreams about it, <laughs> dreams about hunting Wang Wang. People started finding me on the internet once the net uh, really started taking hold, and they started sharing their Wang Wang dreams with me. <laughs> so so uh, a, a guy in San Francisco did the design, which ended up becoming my Wang Wang tattoo. Mm -hmm. We started about maybe doing a Wang Wang tribute website. Dino never ended up doing that. We, we decided it was just too hard since there was nothing to put on there except look at these crazy films. But then came 2006, another catalytic moment for the project where I managed to track down the phone numbers of both the star and the director of They Call Her Cleopatra Wong. Another one of my Filipino obsessions, you know, the karate kicking Cleopatra Wong, super spy, sex kitten, karate expert, all that kind of kind of junk. I rang Bobby, then I rang Marie, and we started talking about the possibility of screening they call it Cleopatra Wong at the Brisbane Film Festival in two thousand and six. <laughs> they said if you can if you can screen this film, Cleo herself is gonna fly herself out to, to Brisbane. So it happened. Mm -hmm. We did two screenings Mari Lee was uh, signing posters to everyone who came along. Everyone loved the film. Bobby said, whatever I can do for you, you know, since you looked after Cleo in Brisbane, uh, if you ever come to Manila, I will look after you like my own family. At that screening was Tikoy Agwalos, who is the guy who said he believes in these films. Mm -hmm. He walked up to me, pointed to my I Heart Wang Wang t-shirt and said, you love Wang Wang? I love Wang Wang. <laughs> I had no idea he was Filipino, so I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. <laughs> anyway, he, he said, do a film festival in Manila. Why don't you fly yourself over to the Philippines and I'll put a Cleo Wong and I'll put your compilation of B-films on at the same time. So I said, wow, this is the invitation to go and maybe hang out with Bobby Suarez and maybe start looking for, um, you know, the story behind Wang Wang. Took a video camera, did my screenings was introduced the first night to Eddie Romero, 
second night I was introduced to the director of Silip. Uh, you know, these are all icons you know, in my in my Filipino obsession. Bobby was there at the airport, drove me to the hotel, drove me to the screening, and for the next ten days we hung out just about every day. It started. You know, the 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 crazy, crazy ride started then. I didn't get very close to Wang Wang, didn't get close to the the story at all, but I I had made enough Chinese introductions to then go back about three months later and continue networking. That's when I found Eddie. Yeah. And that's when I found the brother. And from there it snowballed. When was your first real breakthrough in finding the people who you eventually got to talk to, and how far into your trip did that occur? That scene outside the film museum where I run into Boy Vinero, the editor, is truly serendipitous. But he was as far as I got. I had a horrible, horrible feeling that if I started a documentary about looking for Wang Wang, that was as far as I was ever going to get. But then I was invited back to the Philippines by... One of Wang Wang's co-stars, Jim Gaines, the big African-American dude who took me to Imelda's palace. He was working with Bruno Mattei on what would end up being Bruno's final movie, a zombie film shot in Manila called Zombies the Beginning. So I, I jumped on a plane. I thought this is a great opportunity to at least hang out with Bruno and Jim. And uh, it turned out on that trip that I would discover not just finding by complete accident Wing Wing's director, Eddie Nickart, also the guy who trained him to be a stuntman. Yeah, and he was a stuntman himself. And was one of the most celebrated stuntmen in the Philippines as well. Uh, but then a couple of days later, the same guy who found Eddie Nickart for me also found Wing Wing's brother. Now, that was the catalytic moment where all of a sudden you had a name <laughs> because up until then, even Eddie Nickart couldn't tell me more than Wang Wang's first name. Mm -hmm. He said, I think his name's Ernesto. I didn't know the family name. I thought, my God, this is the guy who basically turned him into an action star, and even he didn't know Wang Wang's last name. I thought that was incredible. But then all of a sudden, I was face to face with a five foot five version of Wang Wang, you know, his only surviving brother. Mm -hmm. And the brother pulled out the birth certificate. He pulled out the death certificate, and that was final confirmation that uh, Wang Wang was no longer with us. Then he drove me to the house where Wang Wang was born and where he, where he died, and then drove me to the grave. And that whole six-hour period of hanging out with the brother suddenly gave me the narrative of mm. Wang Wang's life. You know, then you had a, a, a very definite start point, an end point, all this amazing stuff in between, like the stuff of Wang Wang being a real-life secret agent, for instance. <laughs> yes. Uh, Wang Wang being thought of as a living saint. Mm -hmm. You know, all this, all, all the really crazy stuff. The stuff that uh, sounds like rumor, but ends up actually being confirmed in some bizarre kind of ways. More, more or less, yeah. yeah. I think that all, all of that stuff ends up being ninety percent confirmed. There's still that ten percent which has a big question mark hanging over it. And, and that is the enigma of Wang Wing's life. Because everyone's starting to die, or we can't find them, or they never really knew the story in the first place, Wang Wang's life remains a mystery to a certain extent. We've been able to crack the code as far as we can get it. And that's probably more than 10% is still floating there, like, you know, a mystery cloud. <laughs> like some <laughs> in the room and no one's going to admit to it. I did find very interesting the pure dumb luck 
of meeting Edgardo Vinaro in the parking lot. Well, I, I think meeting the editor really yeah. um, gave me the confidence to keep digging. Mm -hmm. uh, because if, if I hadn't come across Boyd, then I'd still be banging my head against a wall <laughs> in Brisbane <laughs> saying that this, this mystery will never be solved. But yeah, just finding him by pure dumb luck, like you said, I think gave me, gave me a belief in the magic of the Philippines to finally uh, deliver the mystery of Wang Wang into my lap. And I, I, I tell you, moments like that happened all the way through the production. And if I if I tried to put every moment like that into the documentary, it would be a 10-hour journeys into the unknown <laughs> you know, with, with me as a befuddled narrator saying, what the hell just happened? Uh, I mean, for instance, the, the Wang Wang's first director, the guy called Dante Boy Pangalina. Mm -hmm. Another boy. Uh, Right, another boy. There's a lot of boys in the Philippines, uh, and and twinkles and princesses as well. Mm -hmm. um, boy Pangalinan came to me <laughs> at a at a table where uh, I was sitting around with a bunch of old stunt guys and and directors and guys who used to work on Sirio Santiago films, and they just had a meeting at the film academy. We were sitting around. I was drinking beer. They were drinking goat soup. Weirdly enough, it was directly opposite the post-production studio where they used to dub Wang Wang films. Anyway, so I'm sitting there avoiding my goat soup, uh, watching the fat congeal on the top, and uh, I was giving everyone my business card and showing everyone my Wang Wang tattoo. All of a sudden, a voice at the end of the table said, I was Wang Wang's first director. And so I peered down the end of the table. I said, Chop Suey meets Big Time Papa? He said, yes! I said, Dante Boy Pangalina? And he said, yes! <laughs> so I ran over to him and embraced him. And he swore that uh, whatever I wanted, he would give to me since, uh, you know, I was this weird, hairy character that had fallen out of the heavens to talk to him about his... <laughs> I mean, how how absolutely flabbergasted was he that that this Australian knew who the hell he was by name? Well, everyone's like that. that. That's the thing. In in the Philippines, everyone assumes that their work has gone completely unnoticed or forgotten. Mm -hmm. And uh, if someone comes from outside and says, not only do I know who you are, but I've seen this film, this film, this film, and I think they're awesome. Yeah. You know, then it's the effect of them getting hit by a jeepney. You know, they can't believe what they're hearing. So, I mean, you know, this is this is what happens when you're a film obsessive and you finally go to the, the culture from which your obsession springs and you're able to engage with all these guys on a one-to-one -one basis. It absolutely blows their mind that their films have touched someone from outside of their own home culture. They're, they're just and, – and for that reason – they roll out the red carpet and say, whatever you want, mm -hmm. it, it's yours. And I think for that reason, I was able to get as far as I did into the underground. All the way up to the Marcoses. And then all the way up to the Marcoses. Yeah, yeah so borrowing through, you know, the beast, through the belly, and right up until you get to the crown. It, took, it literally took seven years, almost to the day, between starting the camera in Manila and uh, having the world premiere also in Manila, yeah. um, November 2013. I mean, that's a long journey. If I didn't, if I didn't think that uh, these films were worth it, if I didn't think that there was a story that was worth telling, and if I didn't think that the entire 
process of cinema, not just highbrow, but also lowbrow cinema, wasn't something that would be worth dedicating your life to and sacrificing so much for, then I would not be here talking to you right now. There's a magic to cinema and there's a magic to the process of investigating someone like Wang Wang which is so interconnected and I think part of our DNA, you know, this, this idea of storytelling being yeah. one of the most essential components of being human. I want you to hold that line of thought too about highbrow and, and lowbrow cinema and the relationship yeah. they have with each other because that, that's a very, uh, that's something I always try to get to uh, when I talk about these things. But I, I want to hold that off and talk a little bit more about uh, this idea of thinking the trip is worth it. And I have two different perspectives here. What I find really interesting is that the people who are most surprised that anyone cares about these movies are typically the people who were involved in making them. I guess one example coming to my mind is uh, Roy Ashton, who did the makeup for the Hammer Horror films and such. He, he's yeah. he always kind of wondered why anyone cared about these movies. But at the same time, there was the contradiction in his personality when you read his letters about how much he adored the Curse of the Werewolf makeup and how that came off in the process. Clearly, there was something more that he just didn't want to admit to. But then there's another quote I like from the author Joe R. Lansdale from his drive-in book series. And it's talking about watching these types of films, the lowbrow, the lowest of the low. And I'm paraphrasing, but he says, the more you watch it, you develop a taste for it, sort of like learning to like sauerkraut. I want to combine those two perspectives. And I want to ask you, the producers behind Wang Wang, who, who unfortunately you weren't able to talk to, uh, the Cabayas, Peter Cabayas, actually, who, who died in 2007, right? A year after that first trip you had. Yep. One of the things I got from the documentary is their exploitation of Wang Wang. And so what I want to ask you is at what point did your fascination with Wang Wang transcend a kind of mondo fascination to something a little more personal? It was the meeting with the brother. Okay. Simple, simple as that. Um, up until then, you're right. To me, Wang Wang was, um, was a cartoon mm -hmm. of a karate kicking midget. <laughs> in a white suit and a Ramones bowl cut, getting the ladies. And I mean, you know, that that's such a such a perverse image as well. But putting a name to the face and then starting to learn of the way that he was treated, mm -hmm. not just by the producers, but also by his neighborhood and by the by his co stars. You then start to your your empathy goes into overdrive because he was such a, a fragile little creature whose humanity was so raw. Yeah. You know, the the fact that he had come from one of the poorest parts of Manila, uh, that he worked his guts out for a little more than pocket money, and then was returned to his home after the world had been told that the Caballas had. Uh, had adopted him and were treating him like their own son. Mm -hmm. He was basically sent back to his neighborhood after he fulfilled his uh, his function, and he ended up dying penniless and in complete obscurity. I mean, those facts can't help but break your heart mm -hmm. and you to form this empathetic connection, which can never be broken once you form that. So uh, meeting meeting the brother was was that moment where everything changed. And I, I still remember, you know, it, it was such an incredibly powerful moment where I uh, had put my hand on the grave. 
for the very first time in February 2007. And I could feel Wang Wang's story uh, change the way that I looked at the Philippines, uh, the way that I looked at my obsession with their films and, and, and their, their characters. And it also made me realize that I had achieved what I thought was impossible. The, the quixotic adventure had basically come to a head. It wasn't a, an end by any means, but I had gotten as close as humanly possible to Wang Wang. And that in itself was an incredibly powerful uh, feeling as well, you know, the idea of achieving the impossible. So I, I remember sitting in his brother's jeepney as he drove out of the out of the cemetery and the tears just poured out. And I, I was trying to hide them from the brother because I didn't want the brother to think that I was being overtly sentimental. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or, uh, I didn't want to embarrass him. So I, I put my hand over over my face and I just wept for Wang Wang. You know, that, that, that shit changes you. Mm-hmm. You know, it really does. And so I knew at that moment that I would have to see the story out for everyone's sake and, and particularly for Wang Wang's because I think that there was, there was a story that needed to be told. And that story, one of exploitation and, uh, and also the way that someone like Wang Wang is, uh, is regarded by the outside world as, you know, as a child or, or as uh, someone who can be taken advantage of. That story relates to a much bigger story, and that is the way that um, the Philippines is treated by the rest of the world. It's, it relates to the way that their poor is treated by those who are able to take advantage of them. Mm-hmm. Um, the, 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 the core story of, of betrayal, you know, the betrayal of a childlike figure by their adopted parents, by the Ninong and Ninang, which is a sacred bond in the Philippines is one that that cuts right to the heart of every Filipino. And I think that's the reason why the film is doing so well with Filipino audiences is because they, they can connect so well with that, that, uh, that story and are affected so much by the betrayal uh, by the Caballos. You have a moment uh, in the documentary. One of my favorite people you interview is Nick Diocampo. The uh, producer, such a personality shines through. But uh, the moment yeah. you probably even know what I'm talking about now, you probably didn't even fit it into the film because it shows up in the credits. His epiphany. Ooh, yeah. I'm getting I have an epiphany. Yes. yes. Yeah. His epiphany. Yeah. Uh, it, it's such a remarkable scene. I think that's what you were just talking about with the story of Wang Wang almost uh, paralleling the story of the Philippines. Yes. I think that, that was his epiphany. That was literally... 40 minutes after I met him yeah. <laughs> in, uh, I think that was mid 2007. So that would have been probably the third trip. Right. And, uh, I, I arrived at his office, set the camera up. He had no idea what I was going to be asking him. He thought that, uh, he was going to give another, another running commentary on the top 10 directors of the Philippines. All of a sudden I'm talking about Eddie Nickard and the SOS <laughs> daredevils, and, you know, Dolphy films. And he's like, Whoa, who are you? <laughs> Where did you come from? He kept saying that, you know, why are you talking to me about this stuff? I have never actually considered this stuff before in a, in a serious manner, but you're forcing me to think about this stuff. And, uh, and so that epiphany is real mm-hmm. and completely unscripted. And it happens on camera. 
and it, and it happens on camera like some so many of those other great moments that are captured while I happen to have the camera running that you could never recreate. Yeah. Which I think makes the documentary special, you know, that we were able to go in there right, you know, on the fly and capture moments which are just magical. If you can imagine, we, we had, um, well, my editor <laughs> yeah. had 100 plus hours of interview footage to mm-hmm. wade through, plus all of the other source material, you know, the movies themselves. One of my problems was over the seven years trying to find the narrative arc for, for the story. And, and every time I thought I've nailed it, something else would come along to completely muddy the waters, like mm-hmm. the Imelda visit. <laughs> the, the trip to Locos Norte pretty much sealed the deal as far as I'm concerned. I, I knew at that moment that we had such extraordinary footage to be able to pin interest in the rest of the documentary on. The trick then was to try and weave Imelda into the um, into the narrative without it seeming too gratuitous or or forced. Some people say that that Imelda sequence goes on too long or it shouldn't be there. Well, I I say this for me that that sequence where I'm getting driven around for two days in Imelda Marcos's bulletproof limousine bus, that shows to me how weird the search for Wang Wang got. Right. That you are able to go from the poorest of the poorest slums right the way to the Marcos mansion in a Locos Norte, sitting at a table next to the Marcos as well, Imelda is celebrating her 83rd birthday, and realize that all of this makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> when you sit those two incongruous images, you know, McLaren slum and a Locos Norte basketball court. Those two things sitting together make absolute sense in the context of the search for Wang Wang. And plus, Imelda's DNA is so deeply married to Wang Wang's since she used Wang Wang basically as a court jester Mm -hmm. that her film festival was the reason that Wang Wang uh, was sold internationally. Without Imelda's vanity project, there would be no international cult of Wang Wang. He would have remained, you know, a footnote in Tagalog comedy cinema. Really, that sequence is a, is a present to the people of the Philippines. They just can't believe what they're watching. And I, and I still remember the November 2013 premiere in the Philippines when, when we showed that at, at University of the Philippines, which is, you know, notoriously a hotbed of left-wing politics. When I'm sitting with a melody and the whole place has gone silent. They're like, oh, my God, what is about to happen? And I say to her, what do you remember about Wang Wang? The whole place went absolutely apeshit because they couldn't believe that, that I had the chutzpah to ask former first lady about a dead midget James Bond. <laughs> For them, it was the most subversive thing that I could have done. The whole place went, woo, and I knew that we had won our Philippine audience. Right. They might have been sitting on the fence until then, but they had fallen off and cracked their head right after the um, after the Imelda stuff. Regarding the worth of the Imelda Marcos scene, I, I would go a step further, besides just the, the dichotomy of the rich versus the poor. But um, Yeah. And also a parallel story between Wang Wang and, and the Cabalias. Well, oh, I mean, that's true. But also the difference between how she saw the cult of Wang Wang versus how his former coworkers and stuntmen and actors did when they're, they're lamenting the fact that he never got paid. They're lamenting the fact that the Cavaliers, he lived with them, but treated him like a dog and made him go upstairs and stuff. Yet from the lips of Emil de Marcos, he is 
showing the people that Filipinos will have a diminutive, and I think she even calls him deformed or something like that, man Distort- as their hero. Distorted. Distort- yeah. yeah. As their hero. It shows that the Filipinos have no prejudice. It's like this completely different opposing view. Correct. I just thought that was so eye-opening. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know... Now I'm giving way too much away. I should probably edit this out, but... No, no, no. no please leave it in, because I, I think I think it's worth pointing out that lines like that say so much. I, I don't have to editorialize mm-hmm. at all during the film. I don't have to sit there wringing my hand saying, look how badly, you know, Wang Wang was treated. I can set the scene and then let their words paint a thousand pictures. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. There are so many, um, so many rich associations to be made from lines like that, and uh, I think to to try to underline them would be to to do them a disservice. Uh, I think that if you're able to draw parallels without me yeah. tapping you on the head saying, "Look at this, look at this," then I think our job as filmmakers has uh, has, has been achieved. Here's something that I thought was really interesting and, and kind of speaks to all of this. First of all, you've mentioned uh, Imelda Marcos's uh, big Manila Film Festival in 1982, where they thought they were going to sell all of these Fellini-type highbrow films. And the only thing that gets sold is Wang Wang. And I think right. that was a wake-up call culturally to all the people. One of my favorite lines is, uh, are we doing the right thing or the wrong thing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Again, Dick Campo comes to the rescue. Oh, no, so, yes. But also, let, let's not forget about Aimee Marcos. Yes, she daughter. was fantastic, yes. And seriously, I mean, I, I could make an entire documentary about her, and I think I will. <laughs> uh, the, one of the next documentaries we're planning on is, uh, is Aimee and the Marcoses. And their um, final years in in office, where porn was being used as the great distraction, yes, to try and attention away from the from their failing regime. And you've got this amazing battle royale between the Marcoses on one hand and the Catholic Church and the censorship board on the other, battling over pornography, over state funded and state sanctioned porn. That's one of the next films that we're going to do, and and that's a story that needs to be told. But Aimee, being the head of the experimental cinema of the Philippines, being part of that board that uh, that funded and, and um, uh, sanctioned pornography back in the mid-80s, every line that came out of Aimee's mouth was just gold. <laughs> Seriously, you know, an hour and ten minutes, I, I could have used 55 minutes of that just on Aimee alone. I mean, she was fantastic and, and so literate in such a bizarre situation where she is able to straddle, you know, the Western liberal position and also Marcos family position simultaneously. I mean, what a what an incredible achievement that would would be to pull off. Well, it's interesting uh, seeing her up on the screen in the same documentary as her mother, and the the way they speak about things is so different. Yeah. It's very Amelda is on planet Amelda, and she always will. <laughs> in in the two hours of footage that we got from that interview. I think about an hour of it, and that was over two separate interviews. Mm-hmm. An hour is uh, is her talking about how she was wronged during the 1986 People's Revolution, how right. how the Aquino family paid 16 PR firms to bring down the House of Marcos. And I thought this has nothing to do with porn or wang wang at all. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Then, then I managed to get her talking for about three quarters of an hour about that whole idea of, of uh, censorship and state-sanctioned erotica, Yeah, which, which I've tucked away for the next film. 
And then, you know, I snuck in the question at the end about Wang Wang. And uh, it, it was quite remarkable watching her. Where she'd did obviously, this come from? <laughs> Well, no, I mean, she, she'd uh, already pre-approved the, the list of questions. Okay. That was the proviso that we agreed to. But she'd obviously forgotten about the question about Wang Wang. And so, you know, uh, Get Smart, where um, Jaime the robot reboots himself. <laughs> yes. It was like watching Jaime reboot. And uh, she, I said, what do you remember about Wang Wang? And we cut this bit out because it, it just didn't translate. She, she said, the midget? <laughs> yeah. What do you remember about Wang Wang? Do, do you remember him visiting the palace? And, of course, that was one of the great urban legends. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Surrounding Wang Wang, she said, Yes. I said, Why? Because he made us laugh. Yeah. <laughs> and at that moment, I had the, the image of Wang Wang dressed up as a court jester with bells <laughs> on the end, end of his hat, you know, doing a little sailor dance for the mask yeah. bosses. It was absolutely brilliant. And, and of course, you know, urban legend proved. Unreal, unreal. Like the stuff that you think that can't possibly, can't possibly be yeah. true. I want to go back just a second to Boy Venaro, the editor on, as he put it, all of Wang Wang's films. What I think was really funny is over the course of the filmed interview anyway, he is perplexed that you made the trip to find out about Wang Wang. He has this, that one movie made you do this kind of of question. But then as you get him talking, he starts talking about what a, a fascinating and courageous and phenomenal person Wang Wang was. The contradiction being surprised that someone would want to learn more and then talking about how interesting it is, is something Mm -hmm. that I think is a key factor actually in in trying to get the word out about your story. Yeah, you're right. And and in fact, I would go as far to say as the film is actually quite a hard sell because it starts off as one thing and then changes quite dramatically into something else. It starts with what I began with, you know, this cartoon image of a two foot nine James Bond of the Philippines. It then, you know, takes you on that journey to his humanity and to a, a very sad ending. Still uplifting, but very, very sad nonetheless. To try to say that you're going to start off baffled and, and absolutely amused mm-hmm. and then heartbroken at the end of the film i mean how, how do you how do you get that across to to everyone all, yeah. all all we can do is say look you know you will be you may be transformed by this film you know you may be uh convinced by the end of it what you may have thought was frivolous and silly and worthless at the beginning is something else and that really is the story of Wang Wang when you think about it yeah. too. Yeah, if you're able to transcend that that mm-hmm. ludicrous image to find worth, that's the story of B films as well. Yeah, the, and that's where I wanted to come back to the the highbrow mm-hmm. versus the lowbrow cinema where people think everything needs to be the Archers or <laughs> Fellini or or you know uh, I don't know Robert Bresson or something like that. Yeah, uh, those films speak about culture, but in a very rarefied rarefied way. And in fact. Most of those films are one or two steps removed from the reality of the common man. Yeah. It speaks, it speak, those films speak of an intellectual's experience of something that they may be removed from. Whereas the lowbrow stuff, pulp has so much to say about uh, the, the society, the politics, the aspirations of 
a, uh, of a, a popular, of, of a massa audience. And for me, that is so much more interesting. Those little time capsules yeah. of a time, a place, and an attitude uh, than something like Fellini or, or Bresson or, or et cetera, et cetera. And to dismiss those films as being worthless, as, as disposable, mm-hmm. I think that is such an arrogant and wrong attitude yeah. to take. It's particularly uh, distressing when, when you get the information that 80% of Filipino film is evaporated. Right. And in the Philippines, it's so much more heartbreaking because so many of those films were genuinely good. <laughs> you know, and, and of course, the case is that the more you watch, the more you appreciate and the more you want to watch. I'm starting to hit brick walls now. You know, I've, I've seen a couple of Agent X44 films. There were 30 of them. Three exist. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that's just insane even even the the a-grade stuff the highbrow yeah the films from their national artists half of them have have gone gone into there as well so uh you know it was only in the last 10 years that the philippines has has, uh, recognized what a treasure they've let slip through their fingers and even now the national archive which should have been up and running three years ago is still you know all, all of their stuff is still sitting in storage waiting for an archive to be built yeah, until so, it becomes dust itself, right? Yeah, yeah, precisely. Kind of like Ferdinand Marcos's body, just sitting and waiting under glass. Exactly. <laughs> I think we're going to wrap this up, but I, I think the underlying idea that I hope people will understand when they get to the theater, and this is why I wanted to get this film shown, by the way. This is the most important part, I think, of your film. The incredulity of the Filipino people when only a Wang Wang film got sold at the film festival in Manila in 1982. It seems to bring about a sort of embarrassment. And I think it's that exact embarrassment in a symbolic way or in in a literal way that ends up shelving Wang Wang because... No, um, I think you're absolutely right. Cora Cabayas goes on and wants to go into politics. So Wang Wang is disposable. And it's the embarrassment that makes people not want to talk about these films and and you no, meant absolutely right. he's a victim of their cultural cringe yeah and which, ours. Uh, i think if you try yeah, to yeah. sell it i mean the, uh, one of your film historians talking about the uncomfortable image saying that oh and there was another one in the west this would never be accepted i think that's what makes it a hard sell yeah you know yeah exactly yeah, no, you're 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 exactly right. I mean, uh, Wang Wang's legacy has been a uh, has been a victim of political correctness. Mm-hmm. We won't allow ourselves the sheer joy of watching something so abstract and absurd. Uh, the idea that we would be laughing at him rather than laughing with him seems to take a, something away from people. They 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 find themselves in a very uncomfortable situation. Whereas at least. In parts of the Philippines, they're able to experience that joy, the, the sheer joy of watching Wang Wang in action and or, or going to the Hobbit house and getting served yes. drinks by waiters dressed as Tolkien characters. You know. Yeah. Uh, we, we addressed that uh, Western liberal position very early in the film because I wanted to get that elephant in the room right. out of the way as quickly as possible. Yes, it could be seen as politically incorrect. However, <laughs> think of it. In a different way. You well, know? And I think uh, even if it's not even reasonable that there's a danger of people saying, oh, this is just exploitation at the expense of this poor guy. 
but th- it's that attitude that's going to relegate his memory to nothingness. You're going to evaporate him. So right. I think even if the original intention of the Cabayases was exploitation, that yeah. doesn't mean that we can't watch his films with respect. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, even, that's even knowing what even knowing what happened to Wang Wang, knowing the circumstances under which those films were made, mm-hmm. still there is a there is a joy that you can experience from watching a little guy having an absolute ball. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or remember, even the skills of his stunts or you know, all of that kind of stuff. But but also celebrating the fact that out of eighty million people mm-hmm. in the Philippines, that one little guy was able to be sold abroad above all of the other artistic achievements of the Philippines. That That is the one film ambassador uh, <laughs> that has gone the furthest, I think, yeah. out, out of the Philippines. I mean, that fact alone should be celebrated. The fact that he achieved something extraordinary, even though his, his beginnings and his end were under less than favorable circumstances, shit, you know, <laughs> he did something incredible. Yeah. And that is why... He is the impossible kid, you know, right. at least feel happy for the little guy. Cause you can tell from that big beaming smile on his face, you know, where he's, where he's outside his boss's office. Yeah. Yeah. Wearing the hat and, and the x-ray specs, you know, that, that smile I think is genuine because he was for one of a, of a better term, an innocent mm. who was still, you know, despite the fact that he was exploited, he was also given opportunities. And he took those opportunities. And I remember talking to one of his co-stars from Caliber 357, Nelson Anderson. He said it wasn't and, – and, and this guy got to know him almost like a brother. Mm-hmm. He said there was nothing childlike about this guy. He was a little adult with, a, with an adult brain. And he told Nelson, it's not about the money. It's about the respect. Mm-hmm. This is about a two-foot-nine guy who managed to survive a really tough upbringing in the neighborhood right. where – Half of them thought he was a saint, the other half thought he was a freak and would bully him. He was able to train as a martial artist. He became an international superstar. Didn't matter if he wasn't getting rich out of it. It was the fact that people were looking at him like he'd achieved something magnificent. And that is, I think, the legacy of Wang Wang. Someone who was able to achieve greatness in his mind and in the minds of those who have the right eyes to see that and to recognize that. Reminds me a little bit of that Hattie McDaniel line, I'd rather play a maid than be one. Perfect. (laughs) Because he was exploited, he deserves remembrance. So I'm really happy that you made the documentary. I can't wait to have it screened here. So I guess at this point, we'll say that you're taking it on tour in North America, the U.S. and Canada, starting here in San Diego on December 6th. Can you talk just for a second about why you decided to take it on a tour personally? I think that that's the best way to show show your film in in classic 30s roadshow style. <laughs> you know, being one of the 40 thieves like Dave Friedman. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And and, uh, and and engaging directly with the audience. I think there's nothing better than to to watch a film about someone's obsessive search, to connect with that search on whatever level and then to be able to uh, engage in a dialogue with that person at the end of the film. I think that's that's really special and I think it it um makes the experience of watching the search for Wang Wang that much richer. I took the film around Europe for three months. I then toured it around the uh, Philippine Islands for three weeks. Just the the thrill of watching audiences light up watching it is probably the greatest gift you could ever give to a filmmaker. 
And then the opportunity arose to take it to United States and Canada, thanks to you guys. So I, <laughs> to go back to the States after five years and, and to have a finished film now that I can actually screen and watch people enjoy, that's that's going to be the best Christmas present ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really look forward to discussing the film with you. It'll be interesting with the, with the midnight audience. Yeah, San Diego. Uh, I'm sure you're going to really bring out the, um, I wouldn't say the freak, but... Uh, <laughs> I, hope, but I hope a little but bit. But definitely you'll be getting your freak on. <laughs> you know it. Not being disparaging towards Wang Wang or <laughs> no, San Diego. No, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> well, Mr. Andrew Leavold, thank you for talking to me about your uh, project, the search for Wang Wang. For those of you who are looking to see this film, I will post the tour dates on the website as well as probably be constantly posting about my own screening here in San Diego over the next couple of weeks. December 6th, the Ken Cinema, historic Ken Cinema, midnight. I'll see you in the trenches, Miguel. That's right. Have a good night, man. What an amazing conversation. That is one of the most satisfying conversations about B-grade film that I've had in a long time. I want to give a really huge thank you to director Andrew Leivold for sharing his passion with us and also for joining us here in San Diego to share his passion with the audience this Saturday at Ken Cinema, where we are going to screen... The Search for Weng Weng, starting at around 11.30 p.m., with an introduction and Q&A by the director. If you are not in San Diego, look for The Search for Weng Weng coming to your city during this month on The Search for Weng Weng Cinema Tour. Here are the dates. Saturday, December 6th at San Diego at Ken Cinema at 11.30 p.m. Tuesday, December 9th in Phoenix, Arizona at Film Bar at 7.30 p.m. Thursday, the 11th of December in San Francisco at Fancina 21, the 21st annual Filipino International Cinema Film Festival at the Roxy at 7 p.m. On Friday, the 12th of December in Chicago at Chicago Filmmakers at 8 p.m., presented by the Chicago Cinema Society. Saturday, December 13th in New York, a midnight session at Nighthawk Cinema in Williamsburg in Brooklyn. Sunday the 14th in Yonkers at the Alamo Drafthouse Cinema at 4 p.m. Monday the 15th of December in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at the Mausoleum of Contemporary Art at 8 p.m. Wednesday the 17th of December in Detroit, Michigan at Cinema Detroit at 7.30 p.m. Thursday the 18th of December in Toronto, Ontario at the Royal at 9.15 p.m. with an additional in-store appearance at Eyesore Cinema from 6 to 8 p.m. Friday the 19th of December in Ottawa at the Mayfair Theatre. The time is still to be confirmed, so if you're in Ottawa, look at the Mayfair Theatre website at mayfairtheatre.ca to find out when that will take place. Finally, CineFamily in L.A. will have a screening for the 11th date. Uh, that, again, is still the details are waiting to be confirmed, but you can look for those details at Horrible Imaginings on Facebook. You could also email miguel at hifilmfest.com for any additional information, and I will be happy to get that to you. In the meantime, I hope you do get to catch this wonderful documentary. It is the perfect example of understanding the misunderstood, our mission here at Horrible Imaginings. My opening music is by Eric Elick at ericelickmusic.com. Check them out for your own musical needs. And I'm going to leave you now with the famous Wang Wang rap.
by the Chuds. You can catch them on myspace.com slash Chuds Underground. That's C-H-U-D-S Underground. Until the next episode, stay scared.
I can't believe what happened. It's a boy. Hey. What happened? I can't believe it. Where did he come from? Whoa, pretty boy. Mmm, yeah. Aren't you a pretty boy? Handsome, too. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs>